When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search. But what if you could get rid of the search and just match? You can with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. This is The Current, presented by Brian Subaru. The Current is also brought to you by Capital One, the official bank of Tulane Athletics, and PJ's Coffee, a proud coffee partner of the Green Wave. There's the snap. It's a play action. McMillan rolls to the left. Nobody is there. He can stroll past the pylon. Touchdown Tulane. Five seconds left. Inbound on the court. Top of the key. Drives in the paint. Right hand floater off the glass. It's good. Quick feed left side. Lawson has space. Rainbows a three. Book it. McMillan steps up. He throws middle. Caught by McCluskey. Breaks out of a tackle. 10-5. Angles far side Are you kidding me? Touchdown Tulane. Are you kidding me? Roll wave. Roll wave. Let's get a win. Welcome back to another edition of The Current as we wrap up Tulane's loss on Friday night to SMU 37-34 in overtime at Yeoman Stadium. Andrew Alagratic here with Jimmy Orkno and Gus Kattengill. Uh Guys, we're recording this on Saturday morning, so I don't have anything written down. This feels like a catharsis moment because, uh, once again, it's, it's a game that Tulane is so close on. Um, and just enough things don't go right for Tulane to get the win, and SMU wins in overtime on a field goal after Michael Pratt, who plays a pretty good game, throws in overtime on Tulane's first possession, and then SMU takes advantage. So uh, I'll I'll just open it up to you guys. I'll kind of let you guys start where you want to start with this particular game for Tulane. Um, Knock yourselves out. I I don't really care. Jimmy, Gus, uh, just just fire away. Let's see who goes first. (laughs) Well, uh, Jimmy, you were on the undefeated team. If you'd like to go, oh, you want me to go first? Sure, that's fine. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, that's right. Uh, look, I, I'll say this. It's interesting because, Andrew, while you're talking there, uh, two things popped in my head. And one was good and one was bad. And both aren't exactly good, if that makes a lot of sense to you. And I'll explain now. So the good that maybe isn't as good is what we mentioned yesterday at the end of the game where – at least I think this was as ridiculous as it sounds, the most complete game Tulane plays this season in terms of when you look at the other games this year on the slate, even the victories, 
Tulane had slow starts. And I know you mentioned yesterday in the broadcast, well, look, they put up 66 points against Southern Miss. They did, but you know, it didn't start out that way. But they did play better football in that game uh, towards the end of it. At South Alabama, same thing. Had to come back and get that win for that win against Navy. And Houston, you let go with 217 points lead. So it, I'm just going by what you know Willie Fritz was wanting going into this game, and that's four quarters. He wanted to throw the football. He wanted his team to compete. He wanted his team to let go of the two losses and, and, and try to find a way to win. And I think there was a lot of moments in that game yesterday that you, know, you can look at and say, okay, that's the kind of football Tulane's capable of. That's the kind of football Tulane can play. And, and maybe some fields should be playing. It's why aren't we playing that? And look, that, that could be something that later is discussed. But um, So that's why I say that's a good thing in that at least in the game against SNU, we might have seen a quarterback sort of start to really start growing up before our eyes. We talked the last time a week ago, guys, on this podcast, I brought up the notion, I wonder if Will Hall and this Tulane offense will kind of, uh, you know, adjust or kind of evolve where, okay, we have a quarterback that we can throw well, maybe now we start throwing more than running. And, Andrew, you saw in that first quarter, that was willing storylines. More passes than runs. Not a lot of success on that. Or be ready for teams to prevent you from running. So we have to throw. Whatever the reason, Tulane threw the ball. And, and, and that's something that we haven't really seen the last couple of years um, as a primary source of trying to get the ball down the field. So that, to me, is a good thing. But the bad thing is, I think yet again, as I text Jimmy during the game, and we spoke about it also after in our postgame, Andrew, you're seeing teams that when there were divisions would be in your division that have something that you're missing right now. And that is explosiveness, playmaking at the skill positions, especially at the receiver positions. The things that are popping in my head right now, the two conference games, and now really this one, the third one, uh, two of those three, their receivers, I can take a five-yard screen, the crossing route, the you know, the third and forever that they converted um, that went for 61 yards to Gray, Andrew. It was a crossing route that anybody can do, that anybody can compete, but their speed, their athleticism turned that into a back-breaking, game-winning type plays. That's something Tulane doesn't have right now on the field. Gus, uh, I... I agree with a lot of what you just said there. And, and, and so my loosely organized, I guess, thoughts on, on it are um, uh, <laughs> one is to share that observation, you know, to realize that after I, I looked during the week and if you look at the, the transition from Doug Roos's offense to Will Hall's offense, that, that happened after year three. And I really focused on the changes up front and, and I realized how few contributors we have, from the first three recruiting classes up front. Corey Dublin uh, and Joey Claybrook were big recruits in the second recruiting class. They had Dominic Briggs, who was a starter, Juco player in that class. But otherwise, we haven't got a lot of contribution from anybody in those three classes yet. Um, you know, some of those guys in that third class were projects when they came in and may still contribute later. Um, but but we're not seeing a lot there. And so most of your front on off the line are, are guys who've only been with us one or two years. Now, Newton's a transfer and so forth. But I really didn't pay as much attention to the receiver position. And, and this morning, my continuation of the thought on that was, you always hear when Georgia Tech 
or you've heard a lot about Georgia Tech, how they're transitioning from the triple option to a, to a more modern offense in the roster rebuild that was necessary there. I, I, you know, we noticed it at quarterback, and we've noticed that, or I've noticed it in offensive line, but you, you see it at receiver as well, where when you're recruiting guys to come play in what the media at least is calling a triple option offense, you're not going to recruit the same class of guy as what the media is going to call, say, a run and shoot offense, right? And, and unfortunately, Coach Hall, I mean, Coach Fritz, he still gets – we still hear about the triple option in Tulane, which in reality – Which is crazy. Run. They don't run yeah, it. <laughs> exactly. And so people are not paying attention, but there's that stigma there. And, you know, Deuce Watts maybe is sort of the same physical specimen as some of these other guys that Gus is talking about, but he's not quite on their level yet or or we don't know i guess we don't know yet but he's made some plays but i mean they're three and four and five deep at these programs and we have some guys who maybe who i think can make plays you know i think jaquan jackson these guys could be special receivers maybe catch and run type of guys but there were a number of times where Shane, shane michelle had nothing and he just threw up a 50 50 ball and a perfectly positioned defender unfortunately Jalen monroe just got out jumped by a bigger more physical player and, you know, it's frustrating when that happens, but you take it. We give that up in our offense. I think what the, uh, my second thought, Gus, goes to your another one of your points is what drives you crazy is the ones where they catch and run. We need to be able to get guys on the ground when they catch the slant, when they catch the hitch, you know, and, that, and we, we coach that and we're capable of doing it. And, and we, we, on defense, if we struggled anywhere in a way that was preventable, I think that was it not getting the short catch and run on the ground. I mean, look, Jalen Monroe, again, you cannot be a better position than he was on a number of those balls that he got beat on, but he's 5'10", you know, and those guys are 6'3", and they have 40-inch verticals, and it showed. (laughs) You know, I mean, they just just beat him to the high point, and there's not a lot he could have done on a lot of those plays. Um, I thought defensively, I thought we mixed it up well and tried to create some confusion uh, for Bichelle with, three safety looks and a little bit more zone than maybe we normally play. We, we had that huge cornerback blitz with Cabarrus Hall. I mean, we did a lot of creative things to create pressure, create havoc, knowing that those 50-50 balls would be there for them. So we would have to create big plays on defense. I thought we did that. Look, they, they, they had 130 yards rushing or so, but the reason they went to the ground so much is that we did not commit extra resources to the run game. And so we gave them run favorable looks. They checked the runs or they called runs. And for the most part, we contained it. I mean, they ran for about four yards of carry or something. You can live with that. Uh, it didn't It didn't change the way you wanted to play defense. So uh, a number of positive things. In, in, in the last thought I'll share and turn it back over, and we can talk about some of these points. But, the, you know, Michael Pratt obviously has the it factor. There, there's some things that he needs to work on that's going to come with time with any like any freshman. But, I mean, man. You know, you saw the long conversation with uh, Shane Bichelle and Pratt after the game. you got to remember, Bichelle started, you know, I remember watching him in the Red River shootout as a true freshman, you know, in his second or third start. And I think I think he beat Oklahoma. Uh, you know, so a guy has been in those shoes, uh, you know, the freshman starter and, and had some probably good insight to share for our kid. And, and Pratt, you know, I think probably showed him something for Bichelle to take the time he did to talk to him for – you know, two, three minutes after the game like he did there. And then I said last thing, but the last thing I have to say since I threw him under the bus last <laughs> time, guys, 
<laughs> is I, I, I thought the mixing and matching up front was effective. Look, SMU is not Houston up front. We saw Houston's front, you know, hold their own against a very good BYU team yesterday. Um, but uh, Ben Newton, after some initial struggles, really kind of did a good, decent job at tackle. Uh, I thought Caleb Thomas held his own in his first start. Corey Dublin looks like he was com- overcoming the injury a little bit. Yes, there was some pressure, but there was also a number of good pockets, and particularly with Steven Hutterson, once he got going, we we had some seams to run through. Okay, so a couple of things on all of that. Uh, yes, I will echo that last point on the offensive line. Uh, some credit to Will Hall, some credit to Cody Kennedy. They were dealt some bad cards this week, and they made things work as well as they possibly could in this game against SMU. Um, it's so funny to talk about the performance here. Shane Bouchel goes 23 for 37, 384, and two touchdowns. And it does feel like Tulane did a decent job of containing him. But to your point, Jimmy, Bentley is an explosive running back. He goes for 25 attempts, 94 yards. That's 3.8 yards per carry. So that defensive line did its job. And nine times out of 10, Shane Bouchel is going to get his in an offense like this. And eventually he did. Um, I have two I have two questions. One is on topic for this game. And this and the second one is a is a total monkey wrench to uh, the conversation about the game and throws it into a different dimension. But let's start with the one that's about this game and, and the one that drove me crazy watching the ball game and calling the ball game to your point about the slants and needing to get those guys on the grounds. So, you know, even if they do pick up 10 or 15 yards, it's not 40, 50 or 60 down the field and some of the missed tackles. Uh, th- the first question is just from a pure football um, novice standpoint. How difficult is it to manage those, you know, I don't know if you want to call them pick plays or crossing routes, all of those routes that are designed to essentially get a defender out of position and create some space for the wide receiver. Uh, they seem to run that a lot, and I think we got beat on a handful of those for those long uh, catch and runs. How, how difficult are those to defend, Jimmy? You know, well, it's, it's difficult with press man where you're locked into a man. That's that's why those plays are designed. The one long one where Kavaris Hall got blocked before the ball was thrown, that was a bit much. But even, you know, I'm not sure he makes a tackle even if, 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 if he's not blocked. That was sort of icing on the cake. Um, you know, so I think the way you, you attempt to defend, and I don't know how much of this we – well, certainly zone. And, and, and on third and 21, you know, when we were in press man and, and they go for 60, that – you know, I think that might be a conversation between Coach Fritz and Coach Curtis. I know he loves Coach Curtis and has a lot of faith in him, but I, I was scratching my head before the ball was snapped that, you know, why we press man third, third and 21 here, you know, because zone allows you, you know, in that situation, yeah, he might catch and run it for five or six yards, but you can get him on the ground well short of the sticks. Um, and, and the other way is to, to, you know, sort of pattern matching uh, man principles, a lot of the stuff that Nick Saban and guys like that do where, you know, your your zone up to a point and then you're switching to man once they, you know, I want to say declare their intention. It's almost like switching on screens in basketball. Yeah. You know? um, it, it's a similar sort of philosophy and concept. And some teams do it and, and you know, it's not easy um, to coach and to do. But, you know. It, to it, me, that strikes it, me as hard to do when you've got a young secondary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because because if 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 you don't communicate that well, yeah, 
Then you got a situation where you got one guy running wide open with nobody on him and two guys, you know, two guys defending one guy <laughs> in, in situations yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's not totally young because Jalen Monroe is an upperclassman. Langham's an upperclassman. Chase Kirshen's an upperclassman. But you're still throwing out Kavaris Hall, who's a freshman out there. Cornelius Dyson is a safety getting uh, some run. He's a younger player as well. So, uh, okay. So that was about the game. Here's the one that throws a total wrench into the conversation. And I think I brought this up uh, to Gus at some point last night and and maybe at some point on this podcast. Uh, Shane Bouchelle, impact transfer from Texas. Uh, Danny Gray, impact junior college transfer from Blinn College. Reggie Robertson, before he gets injured, impact transfer from West Virginia. Kylan Granson, impact transfer from Rice. On the offensive line, you've got a transfer from Auburn. On the other side for SMU, McBride, one of their best linebackers, impact transfer from Auburn. The guy that made the game-winning interception, Crossley, impact transfer from Colorado State. I think you get where I'm going with this. It's just interesting to me, and I don't know if there's a reason or a thought uh, any idea that you guys have, there's been some major impact transfers that Tulane has faced the past couple of weeks between Houston and SMU and Tulane has gone to the transfer pool and the guys have been, they've been okay. I think Kevin Henry played a great game yesterday, impact transfer from Oklahoma state, but Michael Jones has just been okay from Oklahoma. Um, Jalen Miller on the offensive line. Uh, look, he's lost his spot, a transfer from Duke. A Johnny Kerr's been a serviceable, a serviceable guy on the secondary for Tulane. Any thoughts uh, off the top of your head about maybe why it's been more of a struggle for Coach Fritz and this coaching staff to get the level of impact transfer that maybe an SMU or Houston has really revitalized their program with? Uh, I, I'll go first on that, and Gus, you can add your thoughts. I, look, I, I think um, this is a hypothesis, I guess I'll say. And Justin McMillan obviously was an important transfer for us. But yes, um, you know, Coach Fritz and his staff um, have mostly been together. Now, Coach Hall comes from the outside and so forth. But I mean, for the most part, this is a staff that has. Um, has their networks are not among a huge number of FBS programs. They see them at conventions and they swap ideas and coach Fritz is obviously well-respected. But when you look at the graphic that they show about Sonny Dykes and his, in the run and shoot tree and what had not run and shoot, <laughs> uh, air raid, air raid tree that he was in, in some of the coaches he's crossed paths with his network is really, really deep. Um, to his credit, you know, and, and I think that that sort of thing matters a lot in the transfer world, it, even if it's just two guys a year, Hey, look, this guy's not a fit at our school, but you know, coach, I, I'll put in a word for you because I think he can really fit with what you're doing over there. That and the, I, and the, the secondary, maybe really, frankly, the more important reason, you know, look at the guys who we have brought in. Um, they've either been high academic school guys who are transferring, who won another prestigious university or, or local, right. They're coming from LSU or Kevin Henry's, a, uh, and Mike Jones are local kids who have come back home. When you come back home to the Dallas Metroplex, you're talking about a, there, there are more people that live in the Dallas Metroplex probably than in the entire state of Louisiana. And so it's, it's just a much more fertile home ground for kids to come home to you know just the 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 numbers are there 
in greater numbers. And and when you look at the Metroplex, you got SMU, you got T, for as lo- populated a place, the powers in Texas aren't really there. It's t- TCU's your your P5 school in the Metroplex, but you know Texas is in central part of the state. Houston's in south southeastern part of the state. Uh, Texas Tech's out west. You know, so I, I think that's a huge part of it. Is just they get a bunch of Metroplex kids come come back home. Gus, anything major yeah. on that? I, I would say probably too. Yeah, you have a handful of things. Probably uh, Andrew, luck of the draw, right? I mean, sometimes I guess, I guess it's sort of like recruiting. You can hope that these guys pan out, uh, fit, or or work with your system, and sometimes um, you know it doesn't. But as to you know, obviously, I think the pool as well. I think Jimmy brings up an interesting point about networking. I think a, a lot of the other aspects of it too and especially again i keep going back to what our divisions and i know it's different now but some of the teams you're directly competing against have different rules right and and jimmy you know this better than me probably from uh inside and, and knowing people inside the school and having had different conversations like i've had um i i do think andrew the school and coach fritz has has tried or liked players or would like to have players um and and there's you know, there's hurdles that you have to pass. And, and I don't mean that to be disrespective. It's just, you know, it's just like anything else. Like I, I would have to have a hurdle. My kid would have to have a hurdle in order to get into schools and things like that. So it's grades. It's what are you declaring? What are you doing? Can you maintain that? Can you stay here? And, and that's something that I've heard repeatedly. It's, you know, maybe not even as difficult to get somebody to Tulane. Can they continue at Tulane? Because once they're in, they're I understanding, Jimmy, and you know better, they're held to the same academic standards as any other student, and especially in their field or in their school. So school of medicine, lawyer, whatever, those GPAs, that's what they have to adhere to. And from what I gather, other schools, it's not. So that makes it a little bit harder. That makes it a little bit tougher to say, you know, there's a kid and there's, there's Mr. Andrew Allegretta. He's an awesome safety run supporter, can get interceptions, but there's two schools that appear similar on paper, but if it's easier to get that student into another school than the other, you see who's going to eventually win. I, I don't know if that's every case. I know that's been in some cases in the past, and just speaking with people I've covered Tulane for years. And it's happened to not just coach Fritz, to other coaches as well. I know we hear it in baseball all the time. So um, I think those are the challenges that you have. But, you know, it, it circles around, Andrew. Here's my monkey wrench to so your monkey wrench. Because in our two-minute intel segment, I played Coach Dykes saying that he views SMU and Tulane as pretty similar programs. He believes they're basically the same players. He believes basically they're both institutions that, you know, highly regarded. I mean, you look at the footprint on campus, you look at the kind of facilities, things that it's very similar to an extent and how they view it and, and all of that. And he felt you recruit the same players, you're kind of going after those same things. And that's why I think I started today with how I'm looking at it, right? Look, Houston's Houston, man. I mean, we can go, Jimmy, you know that. <laughs> In the years that you compete against Houston, uh, the players that they're getting, I, I, they're, they're different. So, but <laughs> SMU is – is Tulane, right? I mean, that, that's a school you're looking at. So I think, Andrew, that's why I started the way I started. You have a quarterback in which Jimmy brought up. Their quarterback sat and talked to you. Now, to your point, Andrew, he was a transfer. 
So Tulane might be a bit of ahead of the game in that aspect of it. At least if this was a homegrown, you know, picked player. Um, but, you know, the line play, the defensive players, things that enter, the thing that stood out was the skill position players. And then, Andrew, though, you're rattling off the names in those schools. There's some SEC schools in there, you know, some Auburns and stuff like that. So um, I think networking is building, as Jimmy says, is important. I think the school understanding, hey, look, maybe I'm not saying we need to reinvent the wheel here and, and lower our standards, but what are schools that we're competing with – I want to see it on a sheet of paper, you know, give me a, a word document. What, what, what are the requirements to get an SME? What are the requirements to get in schools that are similar to mine at the very least? And are we playing by the same rules as that? And, and then to Jimmy's point, get out there and, and try to do that because what we've seen the last five years, and you know this, Andrew, the transfer portal now, it's, it's almost like free agency to an extent. Some coaches like it, some don't. It, it's, it's talked about every single year. You have a ton of advocates saying, kids should have the right coaches do it uh so why not so that might be something that grows because while COVID kind of put a, a a pause to it it's not going away let's not forget the Pac-12 and a couple of other conferences you want kids get together and come up with a bill of rights and you know financial sharing or more importantly being able to transfer was a part of those acts so that might be something moving forward in college football that is probably going to be as important as somebody, Andrew, that does the logistics and planning your travel. You may see in the near future a staff member who's responsible, who's basically Jimmy and Andrew, like a recruiter, right? Maybe looking at kids that say, hey, that kid was a four or five-star player. He's not getting the start or things haven't gone well. Let's jot his name down to where you're starting to almost look at players that can come in and impact you because I don't think the transfer thing is going to slow down. I think once we get to "quote unquote" normalcy, that's going to be a huge thing. So, it's I think that is exactly how non-power five schools are going to try to get closer to the Grand Canyon difference between money that's spent between power five and the, and the non-power five. All right. So, just worth following up on all of that. I, I, I have no doubt that Tulane could use a couple of extra dollars thrown at the recruiting staff. Wes Fritz, Coach Fritz's son. Uh, is obviously a big part of that. So is Coach Landholm. They scour the transfer portal all the time, but those guys are are doing yeoman's work in total in the recruiting staff. Um, so hey, look, it's that that's a that's a whole other conversation about uh, resources devoted to football programs and all that kind of stuff. And I've already thrown uh, one run a monkey wrench in this conversation. I'm not going to throw a second. Um, let's bring it back to this season as we wrap things up. Um, <laughs> You know, we, we've talked about this stretch, guys, um, and it's a difficult one. So um, I, I don't I don't want all, all Tulane fans, you know, throwing themselves, metaphorically speaking, into the abyss here after falling to two and three. I, I think we have seen um, exactly how hurtful the Navy loss was, because if you take care of business, the Navy, uh, that Navy team, you're three and two. And even if you fall to UCF next week, you're three and three. And you feel a little bit better about yourself um, going into what is still a difficult stretch, but a manageable stretch. Uh, now you're looking at maybe two and four and all that kind of stuff. Let, let, let's go inside the coaches' meeting rooms, um, <laughs> uh, so to speak, here over the next week, couple of weeks. Um, wh- what, what conversations are you guys having? 
Um, what do you think should be had? What what do you think is uh, some of the strings that you would try to pull if you're the coaching staff to a make sure that the season stays stable and addresses whatever problems are realistically able to be addressed? Uh, Jimmy, why don't we start with you? All right, and and Andrew, I'll give you 25 seconds on the transfer thing. Following up, sure. The, the the one difference. Uh, you got to distinguish between the graduate transfer and the undergraduate transfer. And, 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 you know, the other thing, Jimmy, I just wanted to jump in here. Sorry, sorry to jump in, but you know, the premise of my question implies that the transfers, graduate transfers, all of them matter. Like the only way to build a program is through transfers. That's not true, right? Like you can build programs multiple different ways. So I I don't want to over imply that, you know, the (laughs) Tulane will never keep up unless they land a Shane Bouchelle from Texas. Um, That's Mm -hmm. not necessarily the case. It's just, it has been intriguing to me to watch this conference see some teams flourish through transfers and Tulane is has done good in that, but certainly not to the same level as an SMU. So that's that's yeah. all I was going with with that. But but uh, go oh, back. Oh Jimmy. yeah, I, I think it's interesting, and, and and I just wanted to put a finer point on Gus's point. The 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 graduate transfer, you're not going to have a lot of those institutional filters that that get in the way. I mean, generally speaking, at the grad somebody with a graduate degree that you're admitting into a postgraduate program, it's the undergraduate transfer that. Tulane has traditionally had a lot of struggle with in terms of getting into school. And that's usually been the problem with the JUCOs. And, and it comes to matching credits with pr- credits that your small liberal arts college offers. So some of it is, hey, I wish the academic side would work better with us. Some of it is it's kind of unworkable in certain situations. But that, that problem has gotten a lot better at Tulane, it's, it, but it's not at the point where you're going to get guys in like Houston does. It just, it's not going to happen on that. I mean, I, I, that's not my impression anyway um, on, on the undergraduate transfer. But the grad transfer, which is, uh, again, where SMU has made a lot of its pay, that's something that's more or less open. And we're going to – you're not going to run into too many obstacles there. We had a situation this offseason with a, with a quarterback transfer, but for the most part <laughs> – Yeah, yeah. Yeah, though that's a, that's a nice mild way to put it. <laughs> Yeah, that, that was a, a situation. Deal, but, yeah. <laughs> but for the most part, you get him in. All right. So coaches going for it. Uh, you know, again, I just think that there, most coaches are big believers and not looking at the schedule in advance and fretting too much about what stretch they're on and all that kind of stuff. I, I, if I'm coach for it, you know, look, look, it's a big challenge. You're going to UCF. You know, that's a program that's been building for a while. You're playing at their place. I'm, secretly, I'm hoping that, Mem- that they take care of business today against Memphis. Because I don't want a two, uh, I don't want a UCF on a two-game losing streak uh, <laughs> uh, hosting us next week. Um, I'd like them to be in a letdown spot, uh, coming off a big win against Memphis. That's just me. I don't know that it's the coaches, but that's how I feel as a fan. I'm um, fine with that. Yeah, the uh, uh, look. I, I think you can point to last night's film. It's it's your temptation as a fan is to edge towards the moral victory part we heard so much about the fact that we haven't won a game against a ranked opponent blah 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 and you know look what, what a, sort of reality. announcer would be crude enough jimmy to repetitively bring that up throughout the course of a broadcast <laughs> Cer- certainly not a hometown announcer that would be disrespectful of said hometown announcer who would do that <laughs> well you know here's the thing it's funny how it works though it's true but, you know, at the same time, we were a six-point dog here. It's not like we were some, like, un- overwhelming underdog. Um, it would have been a good story to break the streak, and I thought we had a great chance to do it. I, 
but but what I, I'm saying that to say this. You can look at that. It's easy to say moral victory. You know, you're so close to winning. But the reality is there were a number of plays where totally within your control that if you swung them three, four plays, whatever, you win that game. And I think that that's the stuff that today Coach Fritz and his staff are really going to harp on. Hey, Michael, look, if you get rid of the ball here, you know, if you recognize this pre-snap, you know, and, and, and it's not crushing the kid because he's recognizing it a lot as a freshman, and he's doing a fantastic job for a kid of his age. But, you know, the the, the growth process there, and by the way, I, a few offensive coordinators I've come in contact with, I'd want more with a kid like this because he's Coach Hall is going to continue to play to his strengths, and, and it's going to be fun to watch. But, you know, there, there, are little, there, there were some gimmies here and there that he probably missed that would have made a difference. There, there were some tackles that we missed that would have made a difference. I mean, it's all the, those little things that are going to get coached up and try to improve upon and say, look, you know, you you kind of go where we went last week, but fix and clean up these things. We can give UCF its best shot. I mean, Tulsa just beat them, you know, and Tulsa's looking fairly strong this year, but I don't perceive Tulsa to be ahead of us. I mean, I, I'm worried that we can, you know, that's going to be a hard game to win, but they're not ahead of us, right? And so, you know, UCF can be had. Can we have them? That's the question. And, and it's going to take a better played game than we saw last night. But certainly last night's game was a much better played game than the week before. So there's some hope that that can, that can be done. Gus, what you got? You know, I would say um, something that I touched on yesterday, Andrew, in our post game was harp on the positives. You know, it's kind of what I started on with this in the podcast. Um, this is the closest you came to a four-quarter kind of thing you know you always hear coach say you're 111th and I would expand on that Jimmy I, I'm sure they're going to go over some of the things and I love what you just said about things you can correct because I agree with you you know I, I told Andrew and Steve yesterday in the booth about there's three or four that stand in my head that if those plays are made you win that football game and and that's coaching and that's individual players and it's not just understanding and learning and growing like you're saying in terms of read and recognize that's part of it and I think the other thing is understanding that when you it's – under, it's understanding the moment and understanding if you have that team that's a ranked opponent and you have a chance to win, that extra step, that extra bit of effort it can matter, right? I mean, for example, we saw it with, with Henry, guys. We saw there was, a, there was a period of that game he stepped up. It seemed like every big tackle or every tackle on one drive was him, whether it was bringing Bouchelle down, getting the sack, making a big stop. I mean, he set a tone and did that. Um, there's two drives in particular that stand out to me where a player just lowers the head down or just situational football, realizing where the sticks are in the first down instead of going out of bounds, you're, you're an extra yard or two. I don't know if he'd get it or not, but put the foot down and, and, and see if you can, right? Plays like that create momentum. Andrew, you and I talked about energy at halftime. Um, that sack and that hit by Henry – Right after that, to create that third down, I told you and I texted you, I said that, that was the first time the two-lane bench started chanting defense and got into it. A single play can jumpstart your team. It could be on the offensive end. It could be on the defensive end. We saw before he left, you know, Mark Ingram, where he'd get a, a tough run, and it was only six, seven yards. But if he bulled over defender, it jumpstarted the drive. And, and that's something that stood out to me yesterday. There were two or three plays where, I think if players just realize the moment and, and it's not handed, to Jimmy's point, you take it. 
Go grab it. Don't wait for somebody else to do it. And it goes to what Fritz is saying, 111. What can I do that play, whether it's getting the right pursuit angle, making the hit, getting the strip, getting the first down, getting the sack, making the right read, or to wrap up what I said yesterday to you guys and Steve, this is an opportunity for other guys to step up. And I, and, I, and I go to the receiver position. It's funny you brought that up, Jimmy, about Wadman. I literally talked to the two guys yesterday about that in the booth after the game. I said, who steps up at receiver now and says, hey, we got a kid that can throw the ball deep. We got a kid that can play some, you know, the ball beautifully. It, that can help me if I want to go play on Sunday. So who steps up? Who's that guy that takes a slant, takes a dump, takes a bubble screen, and, and showcases to the country, hey, I can play. So that's what I'm interested in. I think if I'm a coach, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm putting at. I'm putting a highlight reel of, man, we get this first down, we win this game. Man, if I call a better play, we can win this game. Man, I tell you what, look at what this kid Henry's doing. Look at him. Look at what he's doing in this drive. It jump starts us. Hey, who wants to go catch a five-yard slant and do exactly what Gray did? We have that ability. Do you want to do it? It's up to you. And I walk out the room. <laughs> hmm. I like it. No, I, I, I like it. And um, look, Coach Fritz made this point. Uh, he he said it in our conversation, but I'll underline it here. Uh, I, I do think the last point is exactly what Coach Fritz told the team in the locker room. We're going to have to stick together, guys, because obviously losses in the past two have been difficult. You include the Navy one. It's been difficult. It can create some friction. It can create some back talk and it can create uh, people from the outside kind of poking holes at you. And that's family members too. That's friends and family. Uh, You're going to have to stick together. And I I do think that's true because Gus, to your point and to your point, it's um, we we don't like making these comments after games, uh, but but it's a handful of plays. It's not this Grand Canyon gap between wins and losses right now for Tulane. They've got to take care of those plays because losses are still losses, but it's it's a handful of plays, uh, not a ton. Uh, just a couple of quick grab bag things, guys, before we sign off. Um, one, I do want to give credit to Stefan Hutterson, who I think played a good game in the absence of Tajay Spears and obviously going to Hutterson in place of Cam Carroll, who, look, I, I don't want to get into a long conversation here. I think he's a good back, but at times he misses blocks. And that's part of the reason that Hutterson's out there for more downs. Um, Stefan Hutterson, 19 carries 132 yards. That's a career high for the senior plus a touchdown about seven yards per carry. So congratulations to Hutterson. Uh, congratulations to Patrick Johnson, who moves into third place all time in Tulane history for career sacks, 20.5. He passes a gentleman by the name of, uh, LaFrance. Uh, I believe it's, is it Ray LaFrance or Roy LaFrance? Um, so 20 and a half sacks for Patrick Johnson. And the last thing, I, I, I don't want to delve into the conversation. I still want to know where Amari Jones is, and I want to know how he can make a, a bigger impact on these ball games. Um, five carries, 12 yards, uh, two catches, 28 yards. Um, he, he's a factor. I'd like to see him continue to be a bigger factor, whether that's, you know, I have no idea whether that's Amari, whether it's the play calling. I, I don't I, I don't I don't really know. I just think he's got the skill set to be a bigger impact. So I'm looking forward uh, to seeing how that can happen in the next couple of games. Uh, Jimmy Ortno, Gus Kattengill, uh, thank you guys. All right, thank you. And, and good job shouting out Kevin Henry. He's really shown something to do. Yes. And, yeah, um, he, he, he's a guy who's becoming more familiar with the system. He may be a hell of a player down the stretch for us. 
Yep, I, I think so. Seven tackles for Kevin Henry, two tackles for losses. Uh, a guy that Coach Moots uh, has really said has upgraded the mentality of that linebacker room. Hey, look, we, we can pull holes in the secondary because there have been some bumps, and we talk so much about the defensive line. Uh, but between Nick Anderson, Dorian Williams, Marvin Moody, and Kevin Henry, that linebacking group has looked pretty strong this season. Yep, All right, gosh, Jimmy, thanks so much. Not a problem, man. Thank you so much. Okay, guys. <laughs> All right. See you later, guys. Bye, Garber. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.